Pastor Johnny and I just had to look up what Noel means. It's French for Christmas, but Christmas doesn't rhyme with Israel, so the first Noel, I guess. Everyone else may have known that, but I didn't. Um, before we get into our passage tonight, just I want to take a second to talk about Sunday school, if you don't mind, completely un- unrelated to what we're talking about, but today we started in our youth a new section. We're going through Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah, and I know several of the adult classes are doing the same thing. And I just, probably some of you have already under, known why this is happening, but I just wanted to tell you, from my perspective, I asked that there be some synchronization here in our Sunday school class. And one of the reasons is I would love for it to be easier for you to have a conversation with your students on your way home. So if you're leaving church and for some reason there's nothing to talk about in the sermon, then hopefully you can reach all the way back to Sunday school. <laughs> this morning was, and, and if, you, if you studied Esther this morning, that's what we were in today. It was a very interesting, but interestingly difficult passage. There's a lot of history to go through. I, I learned a lot this morning. And you might think, how in the world am I going to bring up a conversation about Esther with someone in middle school or high school or anyone, really? How do we talk about this? One thing that might work is just to ask them, where are you in that story? Right? Where are you in that story, especially in light of the gospel? Right? So Jesus says the whole Bible is all about him, and it's all helping us figure out how we relate to God. So when we looked at Esther three today, and we saw this morning that Esther, well, that basically there was the king who was Xerxes, and he, an accuser came up to him, Haman, to say, this other guy, Mordecai, he sinned, but it's all, everybody that's even in his same tribe, they all deserve to die. And he goes up to Xerxes, and he says, we have to put them all to death. And Xerxes says, let it be done. We're going to kill them all in 12 months. That was all, that's as far as we got, right? We only got as far as to say, in 12 months, the death of everyone in Mordecai and his clan is going to die. We haven't got yet to a place where someone is going to go before the king and plead on their behalf and save everyone's life. So far, where are we in the story? We're the people that are waiting the judgment for a king. Still looking, now we're, we're farther along in the story, but waiting for someone who will plead our case so that we can have life even though we deserve death. I think it's a pretty neat thing. Have those conversations. I think it will be fun conversations on your way home. Anyway, um, that's not what we're talking about this morning. I just wanted to encourage you to have them. This morning we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, the very end of Matthew and the very beginning of Chapter 10, the end of Matthew 9, the beginning of 10. Before we do that, I thought we might have a little trivia game. Audience audience participation. Canon brought to my attention this morning that today is December 7th, and that means that 73 years ago, something really significant happened. Pearl Harbor, that's right. Pearl Harbor happened 73 years ago today. And if you... uh, If you know the story of Pearl Harbor, I'm sure many of you know it better than I do, 
But 73 years ago today, 73 years ago yesterday, the United States was a non-intervention country, right? We saw that there was a war going on in Europe, and we didn't want anything to do with it. We were watching, right? FDR was a president, and he was friends, apparently, with Churchill, and Churchill had begged him to get involved. And we said, no, this, we're, we're observing here. We're not part of this yet. And then in the morning of December 7th, 1941, something around 300 Japanese airplanes, warplanes, came and dropped bombs on about eight, I think, eight battleships and destroyed about 300 U.S. planes. And they thought, apparently, that that would be enough to keep us from getting involved, I guess, in the Pacific, but it had the exact opposite effect. That day, the Americans decided, we're in. Right? And all Americans got in. Before that day, there was a, apparently a fairly large percentage of people who said, we're non-interventionists. We'll watch the war from afar, but we're not getting involved. And one article I read this morning said you couldn't find someone with that view once Pearl Harbor happened. They said, we're in. This is an American war. A lot of, if you've seen Captain America, you get a sense of how young guys were like, I'm signing up for this war. I'm going... But it wasn't just the people who served. From what I've been told, there were rubber drives, um, bought war stamps and war bonds, metal drives. This, the whole country was bought into this because of the event that happened December 7, 1941. I'm going to try to connect that with what we're going to study tonight. I think that tonight we're going to look at something similar to the attack of Pearl Harbor in our Christian faith. It's different because there's not an attack that happens. But what Jesus says at this point is, up to this point, you guys have just been watching. You've just been watching me on my mission. But today, in the passage we're going to read, you'll see this is why you have to get involved. Jesus is going to say that no more bystanders, no more non-interventionists. What we're going to read this morning is, or tonight is why you have to be involved in the mission of Jesus. What Jesus did, he's asking you to now do as his missionaries. I'm going to use the word on mission, missionaries, a lot tonight. And I want to make sure that you don't think I only mean someone who goes to be a missionary in another country. I don't not mean that. But I mean that God has called us in Jesus, to treat the world the way he treats the world. And that means the place where we live, that means the people that we see, and that means the whole world. And so we have to think about how we can be completing Jesus' mission here in Baker County, in our families, in the world. I think the passage, oh, I told you we're looking at 936 through 10.4, 9.35 really, through 10.4. And the passage is going to tell us that there's going to be four major motivations or sources of mission. Ten, I'm sorry, four reasons why you need to get involved tonight. One of them, the first one, is that we're on mission because Jesus loves people. We do ministry because Jesus loves people. Secondly, we're going to do ministry because Jesus answers prayer. 
Third, we're going to be on mission. We're going to do ministry because Jesus has equipped us to do mission, to, be, to do ministry, to be on mission. And fourth, we're on mission because Jesus sends out or he calls out ministers. That's what he does. Let me try to summarize that in one big idea that we are on mission because of Jesus. And we could say Jesus is the source from which all mission efforts in our church springs out of. Because of Jesus, we do, we are missionaries. We do mission work, we minister. Let me try to expand that into a big, a little more complicated sentence. The main idea of this text, I believe, is that Matthew wrote this passage to demonstrate that the missionary efforts of the 12 apostles were, were a response to the person of Jesus Christ and that they mirrored Jesus' heart, they depended on Jesus' provision, they were made possible by Jesus' gifting, and they were performed by those who Jesus called. So with that behind us, let's read the passage together. Matthew chapter 9, I'll start in verse 35. It says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sicknesses and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first was Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, who was surname, whose surname was Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus, who you sent on a mission to rescue us. And we pray that we will have open ears and open hearts to join that mission no longer be people that simply observe what you've done, but to join you in that work and to be uh, people that you use to reach a world that is tired and helpless and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Teach us to follow you. In your name I pray. Amen. Our passage is a little shorter tonight than we've had typically, so what I'm going to do is go more slowly. We'll walk a verse at a time. You think, oh, we'll get out faster. You're not getting out faster. We're just going to go slower. Um, we'll go a verse at a time. The very first verse is Matthew 10, 35. Jesus went to all the towns and villages. He taught in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. And you might think, that sounds really familiar. Didn't we read that? Because your memory is so great, you know the verse. You thought, didn't we read that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23? And you're exactly right. Let me read to you Matthew 4, 23, and listen to how familiar this sounds. 
Jesus was going over all, or going all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Matthew is repeating himself almost verbatim, word for word, it's almost the same verse in two different places. And it's obvious, I think, that he's doing that intentionally. The literary strategy, we've talked about it before, it's called an inclusio, which is a big Latin word. Uh, sometimes we call it bookends. And it just means that everything in between these two exact same wordings is all about the same topic, right? So you remember what I said in 423? That's where I started the topic. And what I'm just saying now in 1035, um, that's where I'm ending that topic, right? It's the same way if you go to the library and you see bookends, you think everything in between this bookend and this bookend is about the same subject. I'm going to start here with sports, and everything to this next bookend should still be sports. And then there's history to history. And it's just saying this is how I'm laying out my argument. So I think that means we need to do a little bit of remembering what was the argument we just got out of. And that was simple. He said that Jesus went everywhere teaching about the good news of the kingdom and healing every sickness and disease. And that's what happened in Matthew chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Remember 5, 6, and 7? That was Jesus' teaching. That was this one big sermon about the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom was that Jesus had come so that we can get into the kingdom. He says, if you want to be in the kingdom, you have to be perfectly righteous. And none of you are perfectly righteous. The good news of the kingdom, though, is that I have fulfilled the law and the prophets. Because if you try to build your hopes of getting into the kingdom on your own good deeds, it's like building on sand that will shift away and your house will tumble. He says, if you build on my righteousness, it's like building on a rock. And when the winds come and the storms blow, it won't fall down. Your house will stay. I can get you into the kingdom. That was the message. That was the good news of the kingdom. Jesus said, follow me, and you can be part of the kingdom of God. Great news. And then he followed it up with healing every disease and every sickness. That's what happened in chapters 8 and 9. We spent, I think, four weeks walking through that and looking at how Jesus was amazing. He did absolutely unique miracles. Many of them were healings of diseases. Some of those were also casting out demons. Remember he did that? He raised a girl from the dead. He said he can forgive sins. There were storms that were brewing, and he spoke to them, and they stilled. Jesus says, I am absolutely unique. He went all around Galilee just touching and healing and caring for people who were sick and hurt, destroyed people people whose lives were in really bad shape. And now we get to 1035, and it says we're at the end of that section. At the end of everything that Jesus has done, with all of that in mind, we're going to move into verse 36 with an and, right? So based on Everything that you know about Jesus, his proclamation that I am the only way for you to get in the kingdom of heaven. And based on what you have seen about me, that I go into the world of hurting, sick, tired, helpless people, and I make their lives better. Based on that, he walks into his message about us joining him. 
The important thing for us to realize is that our mission follows Jesus' mission first. In our one chapter of what it means to follow Jesus, we've seen, oh, let's five chapters of who Jesus is. Our mission, this is telling us, is a response to the awesome person of Jesus. His message and his amazing miracles and unique power. Let's keep walking through this. Look at verse 36. After Jesus reminds us, or after Matthew reminds us of Jesus' person, he tells us something new about Jesus. He says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were weary and worn out, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. I think this is the first reason that we're on mission with Jesus. That's because when Jesus sees hurting people, he hurts with them. We're on mission because Jesus is compassionate. Are you familiar with the word compassion? Compound word, compassion, two, two words put together. Passion, you can think of, uh, remember the movie Passion of the Christ? The, the sufferings of the Christ? The, um, the pains of Jesus? Come just means to be alongside with, together with. The word put together means that you feel the pains or the sufferings of somebody with them. I'm compassionate. I feel your suffering. I experience your suffering with you. Dale Brunner explains it this way. He says, Jesus hurts when he sees people that are hurting. He feels for them. They grab him down deeply. They reach him. This is the first reason for Christian mission is the fellow feeling of Jesus. Because Jesus suffers with people, he forms a mission to them. Isn't that neat? I think it's neat because you don't expect that. You don't expect God to look at your sufferings and think that's, that's a big deal. The God who is eternal looks at our sufferings and cares about them? It's a neat thing. It's a really neat thing. He never says, or his first reaction to our suffering isn't, just get over it. It's not Jesus' reaction. Grow up. You just need to have a bigger perspective. Jesus' reaction to our sufferings is that he suffers with us. He has compassion. It is mind-blowing to think that eternal God can have compassion with us. Why does he have compassion? He looks at us, and he sees that we are weary and worn out. We are like sheep without a shepherd. Phrase is a little difficult to translate, and because of that, tons of translations have slightly different wording, but they're the same idea. The two words can be described as harassed and helpless. Some say worried and helpless. One commentator, he translated them mangled and cast down or walking with difficulty and barely making it. Why? Why are people like that? 
What makes these people oppressed? Dale Bruner says, by what are they oppressed? This is by the lies of secular life and by a spiritual leadership that asks the people more than it gives to them. The broad consensus of the church's interpretation is that the trouble of the flock, the sheep, and crowds is the guilt of the pastors and the vice of the teachers. He says, the problem with people is that they need a shepherd and the pastors and teachers haven't led them to a good shepherd. Isn't that interesting? When he talks about the consensus of the church, he quotes several early fathers. Jerome was one that he quoted in what I just read. Um, These early fathers said, it is the fault of Christian people, at least partially to blame, that the people who are so scattered and so helpless, are so scattered and so helpless. And the reason, he says, is this is the case is because we don't have the compassion that Jesus has. Jesus looks out at a world that is hurting and helpless and barely making it. And Jesus hurts with them. And typically the church says, you're getting what you deserve. Or people who are hurting might be hurting me. This section hit me pretty strong this week as I try to think through it, and tons of illustrations have popped into my mind. I want to give you, I'm going to try to give you two. One was in a movie that I saw, which was a biography of Martin Luther. And this was what led Martin Luther to his reformation. In the, in the movie... Martin Luther is a priest for the Catholic Church. And he walks, and this is taken from Martin Luther's writings. What happens is there is a lady in his town, a lady and her husband, and their son had committed suicide. And so Martin Luther sees the son hanging up. He had hung himself basically uh, out in the middle of the street, and the family's there, and they're crying, and Martin Luther cuts them down, and in walks some of the church people. And they start pronouncing how this boy had sinned. He had murdered himself. He had committed murder. And they were harping on the guilt of this killed, this dead son. And the mom and the dad are weeping and they're brokenhearted. And the church won't let him be buried in the church graveyard. Martin Luther goes and he gets really angry at first. And there's a scene where him and he's, basically yelling at the devil and speaking pretty harshly to the devil. And he says, the devil has accused this boy in his mind. And this boy was like a sheep without a shepherd. He didn't know. He listened to the words of the devil and he fell prey to the despair that the devil had spoken into him. And Martin Luther said, it was the job of the church to bring Jesus Christ and his compassion. And instead, all we brought to him and his family was the condemnation of his sin. And so Martin Luther went and got him out from outside of the city and brought him and buried him in the churchyard. And he said to the family that, he said, put your hope in Christ. He has compassion. When the church has no compassion, Christ has compassion. He fills with you. He's broken with you. And I got this sense of what kept these families and so many people 
in that time away from the church is they thought, God is scary. He doesn't love me. He is angry at the disgusting nature of my sin and my family's sin, and they couldn't imagine a Jesus who sees disgusting people and has compassion. They only can imagine disgust. I thought about it in my own life, and I thought, am I a person who has compassion, or am I a person who feels disgust? And I thought about the rioting that's going on in Ferguson. And I thought for myself, I think, in all honesty, these fools, you are committing violence because somebody has done violence to you, but you're just making the problem worse. And I saw my heart become cold and callous. I think, I, I said out loud, that if I were a police officer in Ferguson, I'd just leave. Leave them to themselves. And what I thought today and this week as I've been studying Jesus is that's not how Jesus felt. It's not that he's saying that the things that people do in their grief or in their pain are good or wise. He's not. They're helpless. They're barely making it. But he hurts with them. He doesn't look down his nose at them. He has compassion. Their hurts are his hurts. Their pains are his pains. I thought, why is it so easy for me to see a suffering community of people and only see their faults and not suffer with them? That is why Jesus says people are like sheep without a shepherd because the church doesn't have compassion. I think a compassionless church is a church that cannot be on mission with Jesus. Jesus could have come and started his mission by saying, I'm a just God, and I'm going to call everyone to justice. But that's not his first step here. Jesus could have said, I am God, I demand your allegiance, because I, as God, I deserve your allegiance. That was not Jesus' first step. Jesus' first step in ministry were to see hurting people and to hurt with them and to meet their needs. The church cannot engage in mission in Baker County, in Ferguson, or anywhere in the world unless we see people the way Jesus sees them. And that's, he loves them. Their hurts are his hurts. That's the first step of mission, and that's the reason why the church is often so poor at doing mission is because it's so easy for us to be disgusted at people rather than to feel their pain with them. Dale Brunner said, mission is not motivated by Jesus' disgust for people because they are sinners, nor even an imperial sense that he has a right to people, which properly understood he had. He says, mission is motivated by the more appealing fact of Jesus' compassion for hapless people. Let's look at the second motivation for missions. It's the second source of mission, where we do mission from, what springs out of verse 37 and 38. Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant and the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. I think this is interesting. Jesus 
sees helpless, hurting people, and his first step is to pray. Later, Jesus is going to send people out, but he doesn't start there. He starts with prayer. And I think part of this is because Jesus knows when we look at helpless and hurting people that the task is overwhelming. How are you going to help? Six billion people are in this world, most of of whom have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. Where are you going to start? You're not strong enough to do this. Pray. Pray. Go to the one who is. It reminds us this isn't our mission. This is God's mission. We're in God's kingdom, and we're on God's mission. If if it's going to happen, he's the one that's going to make it happen. There's an interesting word in this verse I want to point out, and that's the word sent out. More literally, the word is ekbalo, which means to throw out like a ball or to cast out. Uh, Dale Bruner, he speculates on why Matthew chose this word. Jesus doesn't say, ask the Lord to find or to recruit workers. He says, ask the Lord to thrust them out. The idea is this. There are Christian workers already there in every Christian church. All they need to do is have a fire lit under them to have the living God cast them out of their creature comforts and into the world of adventure and need and into the breathtaking work of harvesting the field of God. Jesus is saying, I've got the people. Pray that I'll send the people, that I'll light the fire inside your souls that will lead you to be on mission for me. I think that's neat. It informs the way we pray. When we see hurting and helpless people, we say, God, will you light a fire in me? Will you light a fire in the people at Rafer Road Church, in the churches in Baker County, to meet these needs? We're here, and we say we're following Jesus. Let's pray that Jesus will light that fire and send us out. The second main source of mission is prayer. The first one is feeling the hurts and needs of people along with Jesus. The second one is saying, God, will you do something about it? It makes sense. It makes sense that if I feel their pain, I'm going to ask God to intervene. There's an interesting parallel. I'm reading a lot from Dale Bruner. His commentary was helpful to me. But one of the interesting things about Dale Bruner is he is actually part of what you would call a mainline church. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term, but especially in the 80s, something kind of rose up in the churches, uh, especially some of the bigger denominations, where there was a complaint against some of the more conservative churches. They felt that conservative churches were all about doctrine and the Bible, but not about people, right? And so they moved into what sometimes we call the social gospel but they, it was a focus, a heavy focus on ministering to people and a relative distance from Bible study and from uh, theology. 
And so Dale Bruner is part of that mainline church, and he starts speculating about it. Well, and let me tell you this, that since the 80s, since that movement happened, a lot of those big churches have seen very dwindling success. Membership is down. Um, we talked not long ago about a, a major church that ended up having to shut its doors because nobody was coming anymore. And he starts speculating, why is that? And he says, I think that we lost something that the conservative churches had. Let me, let me read to you Dale Bruner's ideas. He said, many conservative evangelical churches pray. And this is an important part of an, the answer to the persistent question, why is it that conservative churches grow? Is where there is prayer, there is mission. It's as simple as that. Where there is little prayer, there is little mission. So the fact that non-conservative churches are less apt to hold a prayer meeting than committee meetings is a symptom of malaise. This is a creeping death sweeps over the mission of many churches in our time because quite simply, prayer meetings have ceased. And beneath the death of prayer, at a deeper level, lies the death of a real belief that only Jesus literally saves people. This faith in Christ as the sole Savior has perceptibly declined in mainline churches. But, he says, such faith is the mother of prayer. And prayer is the mother of mission. Thus, the theology of prayer is that the subject of Matthew 8 and 9 precedes the theology of mission in Matthew 10. He's saying prayer makes sense for mission because it says what we saw in Matthew's, especially 5 through 9, that Jesus is the only way to eternal life and that Jesus loves and cares for people. That theology undergirds mission. It leads us to pray, and it leads us to go. If you don't believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, then why why mission? If you don't believe that people need Jesus, why introduce them to Jesus? Or if you don't believe that Jesus of 8 and 9, who is so powerful that he can heal at a touch or even just a word. If you don't believe that there is a powerful God standing behind us when in our mission, then why pray? If he's impotent to help us, then there's no need for prayer. He said the prayer matters in mission because of the theology of who God is in Matthews 5 through 9. Jesus matters because he's the only way to salvation. And Jesus matters because he's big enough to answer our prayers. The interesting thing is that these mainline churches, according to Del Bruner, have started in a desire to be mission-focused, to help people. And they've dwindling success, dwindling focus, because they lost sight of that prayer. They lost sight of coming before God. I'm thankful for Rayford Rowe's commitment to every Monday night at 7 o'clock to come and pray. I'm thankful that my experience with that has been that there's real needs, real suffering people, and we come and bring those real needs and real suffering people before God and say, God, will you heal them? Will you take care of them? Will you show us if there's a way that we can be the means for that? 
I think that Dale Bruner was right, that if that dies, if our church stops being a church that prays for people, we'll stop being a church that does mission for people. They go hand in hand. Keep moving through. There's another source, another motivation for our ministry, and that's that Jesus equips us for it. Look at 10.1. Summoning his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out, to heal every disease and every sickness. And the first thing I want to point out about this is that Jesus does not call the disciples to minister without equipping them for it. The third source of our mission is that Jesus equips us. And that's a huge theme in the New Testament. Over and over and over, the Bible talks about spiritual gifts, right? We take a spiritual gift survey here. There's one online. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about it, Romans, Ephesians. And they're telling us that God has given us all unique giftings in order to minister to the world around us and to minister to the church that we're a part of. We learn more about God's equipping us. He says that the Bible is a primary means through which God equips us for ministry. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you're probably familiar with. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Why? Why does God give us the Bible? So that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The Bible is there to equip us for God's mission. Ephesians 4 tells us that God gave us apostles and teachers and pastors to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That God has made it his task in so many ways to equip you and I for the good works of ministry. And he does that because he expects us to be on mission with him. It doesn't make sense for him to equip us for something that we're not going to participate in. I think not only does this verse tell us that God equips us for mission, it tells us a little bit about what that mission is going to look like. One of the neat things is that he talks to these 12 disciples and he gives them the power to cast out demons and to heal every type of sickness and disease. And you're thinking, well, that sounds just like what Jesus was just doing. In 8 and 9, Jesus went through all of Galilee, and we saw over and over Jesus casting out demons and healing every type of sickness and disease. And it tells us that Jesus, when he puts us on mission, is saying, I want you to basically look like me in your community. I want you to do the things I do around people that you live with, people all over the world You need to be the people who look like and act like me. More specifically, we see that there's kind of two big tasks there. And Matthew Henry, we quoted him this morning, he says, Note the design of the gospel was twofold, to conquer the devil and to cure the world. He says we're here to battle spiritual disease and physical disease. The effects of sin, we want to fully attack it. We want to show people spiritual life, eternal life, but we also wanted hospitals and meeting physical needs, food and clothing, sickness, that we are a full-orbed attack against the effects of the fall. Every part of it. We want to introduce you to Christ, 
We want to introduce you to a doctor. Because all sin and suffering is what Jesus fought against. And so that's what we fight against. I think it might be helpful to briefly talk about the gift of casting out demons and healing every type of disease and sickness. And I want to talk about it really briefly. I recognize that there's probably, I know there's a huge variety of views on this in the church at large. I I would assume that there's probably a pretty big variety right here in this room. So I'm not going to try to go into a ton of detail, but I do think I'll say some things that I think everyone in here will agree with. The first is that this passage to the 12 disciples, this passage in Matthew, doesn't seem to be a universal passage for everyone. And that's because it wasn't a universal passage for the disciples even. They heal in chapter 10 and go on a mission, and then that stops until Acts chapter 2. And so what's going on right here seems to be a quick picture of the disciples are carrying on the work of Jesus. And then that's going to change and look a little bit different once Acts 2 starts. A second thing I want to point out is that as Scripture goes on, you see clearly that not everyone has these miraculous gifts, right? Some people will argue that no one has them anymore, but regardless of that, we know that not everyone did, and we know that because 1 Corinthians 12 says that God has given some to be apostles, some teachers, and then he says, and some the gift of healing, and some the gift of miracles, and why did he do that? 1 Corinthians 12 says, so that you know that you all are a body that needs each other, Right? So everyone does not have the same gift. And it's inappropriate for anyone to say that anyone that doesn't have the gift they have isn't on the same spiritual plane. God says, I've gifted you differently so that you know you need each other. And then he goes, that's the end of 12. And verse 13, he says, and the point of that is so you would love each other. So you would learn to love. Let me tell you a third point is regardless of what you believe of whether these miraculous miracles have stopped, regardless, the Bible was very clear that God's still working miracles and that we are still required to pray for them, specifically healing. Let me read in James chapter 5. It says, Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him, and after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord, says the prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will restore him to health. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And we know from James, especially from Paul, that that doesn't mean that every single sickness will be healed in the way we pray. But nonetheless, God has commanded that you are a body that is expected to pray for each other. And that includes praying for our physical needs for each other. That's what the church does for each other. And so regardless of what you believe about miraculous gifts of whether it looks exactly like the disciples did or not, you can't hold to a view that says God's not still at work healing people in this church through the prayers of his body. We're called to do that. But let me get back to this passage and say, what's the main point here? Some major takeaways. One is that God's mission cares about the soul and it cares about the body. God's mission is fully orbed, combating sin. 
Two is that God is gifting us so that we will be involved in his mission. He is equipping us and gifting us so that we'll be ministers for him. Another thing that we learn is that we do this as a body, as a group. None of us are sufficient to do this on our own, and so we pray that God will equip us and equip us corporately to do his work. And that really transitions us into our fourth motivation, our fourth source, and that fourth source is the calling of the apostles. I'll read to you starting in verse 12, I mean starting in verse 2. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And so on one hand, this is just a simple list, right? When Jesus first passes on his mission, these are the 12 people that are there. These are the first 12 people Jesus sends out on mission. When he feels compassion for the harassed and the helpless people, he tells these men, these 12 men first, to pray. He equips these men to serve, and he sends them out on mission. But I think that these men are meant more than just to be a historical record. They're meant to be a model for us and a guide for us. They're kind of a paradigm that we follow as we think through what mission is supposed to look like. And so I want to just point out two takeaways. One we've already talked about a little bit, and that is the 12 disciples and 12 apostles remind us that this work, this mission, needs a diverse body. 12 radically different people. We talked a few weeks ago just about how different two of them were. One was Simon the Zealot, and the other was Matthew the tax collector. Can't really imagine two more different people. One of them was a zealot who believed that the government of Rome was so evil that we should protest violently, even perhaps by killing Roman people to free ourselves from their oppressive hand. The other, Matthew, said, I'm going to actually work for them and oppress my own people by collecting taxes from them. And I know they didn't get along. (laughs) If, If Republicans and Democrats can't get along, then zealots and tax collectors couldn't get along. But Jesus calls them both, and he uses them both, right? I'll read to you. It says, this list teaches us that we need each other just as we need Christ, and we need prayer, and we need spiritual gifts. Was it, he asks, was it Phil, and this is Dale Bruner I'm reading from. He asks, was it Philip Yancey who reminded Christians that conversion should always come attached with a warning that you cannot do this alone? We live within a fellowship of believers, and we should always seek to honor this fellowship. In the event, this means that we should always seek to become churchmen and churchwomen. He's saying that the fact that Jesus called 12 people, 12 radically different people, said that my mission is a corporate mission. Not one that you do as a lone ranger, it's one that you do as a body. And I'm calling different people because I have different tasks and you guys need each other. We have to learn that. Another thing that I think we can remember is that Matthew is putting these 12 disciples, these 12 apostles for us to remind us 
that we're in fellowship with them, that we're continuing what they started, right? And so we remember that these apostles are kind of like our fathers in the mission. And I think that's why in Acts 2.42, when the first church meets and starts thinking, what are we going to do? What's our mission? They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Let's get out the writings. Some of the writings haven't even been finished yet, but they're grabbing the Bible, the New Testament, and to say, let's see what these men have to say for us. The authoritative writings of the apostles, the New Testament, is the guidebook, the marching orders for the mission of the church. And it should be the guidebook and the marching orders for us. That if we want to be on mission with Jesus, we have to do it in accordance with his Bible. We can't put it away and say, I know about serving people. We serve people under the authority of these 12 apostles. Before we close, I want to just kind of go back and summarize. What I've tried to argue tonight is that this passage is asking us to get on board. You've had nine chapters of watching Jesus do mission. The 10th chapter says, and now join them. Nine chapters, it said, you can see how it's done. And the 10th chapter says, if you're going to be in my kingdom, if you're going to be my follower, you have to participate in mission. And we see some things that mark good mission or destroy it. That if you aren't compassionate, it will destroy your ability to do mission. If you can't hurt with people who are hurting, then you will not be able to minister to those people. But if you do hurt with people who are hurting, then you'll long to minister to them. Compassion is a fuel of God's ministry. So is prayer. You do not beg God to intervene in the lives of hurting and helpless people, then our ministry will fizzle and die. None of us at Rayford Road are talented enough smart enough or good enough to minister even to Baker County alone, much less the world. But God is. He said, just beg me. Just ask me to light a fire to send you out into this world to make you an effective minister. That if we're going to minister effectively, we have to commit ourselves to pray. There's a third motivation or a drive that gets us into ministry, and that's God didn't give us these gifts to waste. God has equipped you and has spent his life equipping you for ministry. One of the things I loved about the um, Celebrate Recovery message, one of the last ones were you walk through these hurts, hangups, and habits so you can help other people walk through these hurts, hangups, and habits. That God has equipped you to be on mission. Don't waste that. Use that equipping to minister to other people. And the last reason that we're on mission the motivation and the guide that keeps us rightly on mission is God's word. We need to be careful that we don't become people who discount the importance of God's word and guiding us to love the people around us. I'm going to close in prayer in just a second. But before I do, will you ask yourself, which of these four sources, these four motivations, do I really need to work on in my life right now? Am I a person who lacks compassion? When I see hurting people, do I hurt with them? 
What about a person of prayer? When you see hurting people, do you ask God to intervene? Is praying for the needs of others a regular part of your life? If not, will you repent of that tonight? What about using your gifts? Do you strategically think through, how has God specially equipped me to serve this body and to serve this community? What gifts and talents do I have that can minister to people who are hurting and lost and they're like sheep without a shepherd? And God's equipped me to deal with that, to help them. And lastly, have you grounded yourself in his word? You joined arms with the apostles and said, I know God's word enough to take a message of truth and authority into a world that needs it. Leaving behind fluffy ideas, waves like you're tossed to and throw and to and fro and you're grabbing something substantial that people can actually see real life change under the apostles' teaching. Let me pray. Dear Lord, what an honor that you've asked us to join you in a mission that honestly is way over our heads. So we ask for humility, we ask for compassion, we ask for a heart that runs to you and prays to you, we ask for steadfastness as we learn to develop and train our gifts, and ultimately we ask that you will keep us by the preserving power of your word. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nathaniel.